Welcome to Time Out for Humanity, a podcast that invites you to take time off from work for your mental, spiritual, and physical health. Every episode, we interview an expert to show you how. Nina Wasso is an attorney and a partner at the law firm Feinberg, Jackson, Worthman and Wasso. She's an expert in employment and disability protections. She advises clients on severance agreements, workplace accommodations, disability claims, and working while disabled issues. She also protects the public by suing companies that mismanage retirement funds. She graduated from NYU School of Law and Columbia University. Welcome back, Nina. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so, COVID, COVID, COVID. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted to talk today about long COVID and disability um, because it's, I mean, it's been in the news. It's something people are talking about, and um, but I, it's still relatively new subject as far as disability insurance companies and, and government agencies that provide disability benefits are concerned. So I thought it would be worth worth exploring some of the issues that are associated with long COVID. So shall I just dive right in? Dive in. Okay. So some number of people who who have COVID-19 experience symptoms that go beyond um, their original infection. So it can, it doesn't necessarily, um, it's not necessarily limited to folks who have a severe or acute case of COVID-19. It can happen to people who have a mild case. Um, you know, there's actually quite a number of reports of people who were infected early on in the pandemic and didn't even have a positive test result because testing was not so easily available um, or widely available back in the early part of the pandemic, but who had the symptoms consistent with a COVID diagnosis and then, um, you know, have continued to struggle with ongoing problems since then. So um, it doesn't necessarily correlate, as I said, to having a more severe COVID infection. And it's also somewhat unclear. Um, the evidence is, is not totally well established as far as how prevalent long COVID is. Um, certainly not everybody who gets COVID experiences symptoms in the weeks and months and possibly even years after their infection, but some some number of people do. I've seen numbers from one third to, there was a study done of people who had been hospitalized for COVID, so obviously more severe cases, and it was like, um, more closer to 70% of, um, of those folks who were experiencing symptoms within, you know, continuing past six months of their original infection. Um, and it's actually, it's, it's an interesting um, diagnosis or, or sim syndrome because it's maybe the first ever to have been established and, and discovered, um, for lack of a better word, by through social media. Um, so people who have experienced long COVID or experienced post-COVID symptoms have been talking to each other on Facebook, on other social media platforms and forming communities and using their voices through those platforms to get attention of the medical establishment and governments um, on this problem. And they've been successful. So the CDC now has um, a, 
a page on post-COVID conditions where they list some of the symptoms. Um, and actually, multiple agencies within the Biden administration have issued guidance saying that long COVID or post-COVID syndrome can be disabling, so um, can meet the, the um, definition of a disability under the ADA. Um, and there is a stu there's study ongoing in the Social Security Administration for for um, including long COVID or post COVID syndrome as a as a disabling condition. Um, so the um, Health and Human Services Agency, Department of Labor, and Department of Justice have all issued um, released resources regarding disability and long COVID, which is helpful to people who may be trying to get income replacement or other kinds of or or accommodations at work um, based on post-COVID um, symptoms. So what are post-COVID symptoms or what is long COVID? Um, the most common symptoms that people report are uh, chronic or um, sustained fatigue. Um, and not just tiredness, but a deeper kind of exhaustion, inability to um, recover from relatively minor exertion, like going to the store. Um, uh, so, so fatigue, and particularly fatigue that is exacerbated by exertion um, of any kind. Um, difficulty with focus or concentration. Some people refer to this as brain fog. Um, that's a very, very common symptom of post-COVID or long COVID. Um, and then various kinds of respiratory symptoms, shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, cough, chest pain, um, uh, heart palpitations, these sorts of um, symptoms are, are common in, in long COVID. Those are the main ones. There are a, a wide variety of other symptoms that people have reported. Um, and they're, you know, they can be neurological, they can be, um, uh, you know, kind of pain and pain-related um, symptoms like joint pain, muscle pain, um, pins and needles feeling, which might be classified as neurological, um, ongoing fevers, rashes, changes in smell or taste, a wide variety of symptoms. But the, the ones that seem to be most prevalent are fatigue, brain fog, um, and respiratory symptoms. Um, and Certainly the fatigue and brain fog um, are familiar to those of us in the disability world um, because there's a, there's a syndrome or, or constellation of syndromes that is sometimes referred to as myalgic encephalomyelitis or ME or chronic fatigue syndrome or um, SEID, systemic exertional intolerance disease. All, all three of those are different names for um, for uh, the same. They're not necessarily the same thing, but the same set of symptoms can be referred to by any of those names. Um, and uh, 
very often those symptoms and those syndromes are triggered by viral infections. So somebody will get sick with a virus, recover sort of from the virus, you know, they're not acutely ill anymore, they're not running a high fever, etc. But they have ongoing lasting symptoms that are, um, that center around fatigue and cognitive impairment. And that's something that as a disability attorney, I've seen very many, many cases of for the last several years, um, really the last 10 years, but it used to be the, the, the research and knowledge about these syndromes has, has developed over the last 10 years. It used to be that it was just called chronic fatigue, fatigue syndrome, and there was less of a strong or less well-understood connection between that and a viral infection. Um, but the um, research on myalgic encephalomyelitis and related symptoms does does see it's not always, but it does seem to frequently be correlated with um, the aftermath of a viral infection. So it's not surprising or, or not terribly surprising that we would see this in um, folks who've had COVID. Um, and and indeed, that's that's what seems to be happening. Um, and the the insurance company reaction and the government reaction in terms of Social Security and other benefits providers has been, um, key, you know, somewhat predictable in the same, you know, similar to what the reaction is or has been historically to, to folks who have um, the post-viral sim symptoms from other kinds of viruses. I feel like I've been babbling for a long time, so I, I'm going to stop. I can go on, but I, I'm going to stop and see if you have questions. <laughs> no, I, 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 you're not babbling, but I do have questions. Um, okay. I imagine someone listening to this um, would say, would ask, you know, we have heard about how insurance companies treat people who claim to have a chronic fatigue or any type of quote-unquote self-reported uh, symptoms. Yep. And their response is usually like, uh, we don't really believe you right. because we can't really test you for uh, physical signs or objective evidence. Right. So, you know, that worries me. And so what's the first thing I should do um, mm -hmm. if I think I have long COVID? How do I establish a claim? That's a great question. So if it may be already too late for this, but if possible, good to have gotten um, the COVID diagnosis. So if you think you might have COVID, go get a COVID test. Um, and if you have a positive COVID test, continue to test until you test negative um, so that you have documented how long the infection lasted. Um, Sometimes people test positive for a really long time, even after they're acutely ill. So it's important to continue testing. Um, and, uh, you know, as with any illness that might be potentially disabling, my advice would be to document, document, document. So that can be keeping your own you know, kind of symptom journal, um, you know, writing down if you can, or even just doing a voice memo to yourself if it's too much to write down what your symptoms are like on a day-to-day -day basis, what your functionality is like. So today I was able to walk to the store. I spent 20 minutes um, on my feet. I was exhausted after 
I, I was in bed for the rest of the day, that sort of information. Um, and then in addition to, you know, documenting yourself, also seeing doctors um, and asking them to document the symptoms that you were reporting. So, um, you know, I, usually people start with their primary care doctor. Um, and then with long COVID, you know, depending on what the symptoms are, it may be advisable to see specialists such as a neuropsychologist for cognitive symptoms um, or a neurologist. Both of them are qualified to, to address cognitive um, difficulties. Um, neurologists uh, can also sometimes help with the fatigue um, and or rheumatologists sometimes if there's joint issues, joint pain or pain generally. Um, uh, you know, I'm having trouble thinking off the top of my head of other specialists who it's worthwhile well, to well, seek well, out. What about if, let's say I, I did got COVID, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, sometimes I feel too tired to work, but I'm really depressed because I can't, you know, do the things I want to do. And it's the depression that disables me. What do I do now? Am I eligible to apply for disability? You are. Um, in California, you're eligible for state disability benefits if you have a care provider who's willing to certify that you're not able to do your job because of any medical condition, including a mental mental health issue. Um, and private long-term disability policies generally do provide for up to 24 months of benefits for mental illness. So if you, again, have a have a care provider who's willing to certify that you are, you know, sufficiently impaired by your mental illness that you need to take time off of work, then you um, can submit a claim. If your employer has a short-term or long-term disability plan, um, you can usually submit a claim under that plan and be eligible for benefits for up to two years. Should I see a specialist in psychology or do you think that I could just rely on my primary care doctor to certify my depression? Better, if you can, to see uh, either a psychologist or um, psychiatrist, uh, you know, but really the most important thing is that whoever it is, psychologist, psychiatrist, or primary care doctor is going to be willing to fill out a form or to, you know, write a letter if necessary. Sometimes, you know, the insurance company wants to talk on the phone to the doctor and some doctors are really not willing or able to respond to that kind of inquiry. Um, and that is going to make it much more difficult for their patient to get the benefits that they need. So I would say, ask the doctor, just come out and ask, you know, are you able to fill out a form? Are you going to willing to fill out a form for me that I am, that I need to be off of work right now and see what they say. Um, and also, I mean, this is, unfortunate but like if you have a doctor that doesn't if particularly psychologists sometimes don't keep good notes um i hate to say it uh, but you know it's it's vital that you have notes and records documenting the care that you've received so if you if you know that or if you have reason to believe that this doctor is not keeping good records of your care then maybe you want to seek out another doctor who can help with the just and not necessarily for the care sometimes i often 
um, t- tell my clients, you know, you can have doctors that you rely on to help you with your problems who aren't the primary people that you rely on to report to the insurance company. Those can be two different people. As long as they both know what's generally going on with you and have a, are able to report on your condition, that's okay. Um, it matters more that the that the person who's going to be reporting to an insurance company or government agency is somebody who keeps good records and is willing and able to fill out forms. But that doesn't necessarily make them the best care provider. <laughs> <laughs> so what if, so how do I know if my claim is, well, I mean, tell us about the process of applying for um, private disability through the employer. Um, I already quit my job. And those HR people, they don't necessarily want to talk to me anymore. Um, what do right. I do? Well, um, so if you're if if you're either still employed or ha- you know left your job relatively recently, you sometimes can go on an employee intranet. Like you know, there's a, a login for employees where you can access. Um, HR and benefits documents, and there might be claim forms available on that intranet site. And if not, you know, call HR, call the benefits department, and say, "I need, I need long-term disability forms or short-term disability forms. Can you send them to me?" Um, or if that if that's not working, and you know who the insurer was for your for your employer, call up the insurance company. Their their numbers are available on the internet you know, find Unum or Prudential or Lincoln Financial or whoever the insurance company was and just call them up and say, this was my employer. I need to apply for a long-term disability. Please send me the forms or please direct me to where I can fill out the forms online. Um, uh, Or another idea would be to enlist the help of a former coworker and say, can you request the forms and then email them to me? you know, if somebody somebody who's still employed, because that person may have more of an ability to a just be functional and b you know get HR to respond to their calls. Is there a general deadline to apply for these uh, employer-sponsored policies? Um, well, so the policies typically have a deadline built into them. Um, you know, commonly you would see the policy say you're supposed to submit your claim within 30 days of you know, of becoming disabled or something along those lines. But it's important for people to know that if they are, if it's an insured plan, so if it's, um, if there's an insurance policy that was issued to the employer that um, is going to be, and the insurance company is the one that's going to be paying the benefits, then there's something in California called the notice prejudice rule, which means that you Cannot basically, you can't have your claim denied on the basis that it was submitted late unless the insurer can show that it was prejudiced by the late submission. So, um, generally speaking, for an insured plan, if you submit it late, it's okay. Um, that said, not every plan is an insured plan. Some plans are self-funded, like usually for bigger employers or if you um, are in a union and have union benefits. Um, those plans are paid by the employer or paid by the um, multi-employer trust fund, union trust fund, um, then the notice prejudice rule doesn't apply. So, and it it sometimes can be hard to tell because even a self-funded plan can be administered by an insurer. 
So you might still be interacting with an insurance company, but really the insurance company is just acting as an administrator for the plan. They're not actually paying the benefits. So, you know, if you can get your hands on a copy of the policy or the summary plan description, it should tell, it should say whether it's an insured plan or not. Um, but, um, you know, the, the best, the safest route is to try to submit your claim within, you know, a month or so of when you first become disabled. How are insurance companies, generally speaking, responded to these COVID claims? Well, they have, uh, I mean, very similarly, I would say, to how they have responded to um, other claims of post-viral symptoms, such as um, myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, um, and, and those, those disorders. So oftentimes, as you said in your first question, there's been pushback based on lack of objective proof um, uh, or, you know, the fact that the symptoms are self-reported. Um, I don't think, so, I, you know, the, they're hard claims. <laughs> um, mm, okay. I, and I don't have kind of data on whether long COVID claims have been denied in greater numbers than other chronic fatigue type claims. Um, it's very possible because insurance companies just tend to be resistant to anything new. Um, and long COVID is not well studied or, you know, well documented in the scientific literature, although it is documented to some extent and, and there is extensive literature on post-viral conditions um, of which, you know, long COVID seems to be one. So, uh, you know, it's, it seems likely to me without you know, this is anecdotal, I don't have data, but it seems likely to me that, that long COVID is going to be treated um, very similarly to other chronic fatigue type claims. And that means they, it will be difficult, but possible to obtain benefits based on that, that condition. And the best way to, to go about it is to um, like I said, document, document, document. The fact that there is no objective proof doesn't necessarily preclude you from getting disability benefits. Um, and also, objective proof can be um, your doctor performing some um, basic tests, neuropsychological tests. Sometimes that has to be done by a neuropsychologist, but many neurologists will administer some basic tests as well that can show the, the cognitive deficits in a, you know, normal office visit to a neurologist. Um, or, you know, fatigue, post-exertional malaise can be shown with a, um, by a physical therapist, for instance, um, you know, if you're going to physical therapy and you can get a physical therapist to document that you are, you know, unusually or abnormally tired by um, basic, you know, exercises or, or non-intense exercises. Um, so it's not, I wouldn't be put off by the idea that they're, that it's self-reported or not objectively verifiable because there are lots of ways to prove that you are experiencing the symptoms that you're experiencing. 
But I mean, the, the basic answer to your question is I think it's likely that insurance companies will be pushing back on this because, because it's a little bit harder to prove than say, you know, um, cancer or glaucoma or, you know, these sites, any, any, any condition that has a um, simple objective diagnosis through a blood test or a scan is easier to get disability benefits for than one that doesn't. That's just the way it is. Now, um, you know, I, I can see the insurance company, you know, approving these claims if it's a short-term claim, because there's obviously a limit. They are short-term by nature, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what about long, these long-term claims that can last a few years or even up to um, retirement? Wouldn't they say, well, um, well, we would approve your short-term claim, but why would we approve your long-term claim? Because, um, you know, COVID shouldn't last that long. Is that what the insurance company would be saying? It's very plans. possible that, that that an insurance company could have that um, have that reaction, and you know, the the response is to just provide all the evidence that it is currently impairing, and then if you get on long term disability, you'll be required to re recertify your disability on you know usually either a semi annual or annual basis. So continuing to submit medical records forms from the doctors, you know, insurance companies keep asking right. um, for proof. <laughs> and, um, you know, so there, the assumption may be that you're going to recover and hopefully you will. Um, but as long as you are able to provide evidence that you haven't recovered, um, you should be able to continue getting disability benefits. You know, sometimes people get sick, but they have good days and bad days, or they have good weeks or good bad weeks. If I have COVID, you know, some, some weeks I might be fine and I could do some work and some weeks I might feel worse and I feel really tired and I can't do anything. Yeah. I mean, how do I, how do I handle those ups and downs? Should I just say, well, um, I shouldn't apply because I don't even know how long I will be disabled or... Um, Definitely not. Um, you should still apply. Okay. The ups and downs are normal and part of most chronic conditions. Um, and, you know, one thing I do as a lawyer when I'm, uh, you know, either appealing claims for people who've been denied for chronic illnesses or even submitting the original claim is to have them do a statement, you know, a declaration, and they explain, I have good days and bad days. Some days I'm able to go to the store or a doctor's appointment or, you know, even, you know, um, send some emails, but other days I'm really in bed and can't do much of anything all day. And um, I, I always encourage my clients to tell that to their doctors um, and make sure that that's documented in their records, because that's that's normal. Um, and it's, it's certainly not disqualifying for disability benefits. And, and as far as not knowing how long you're going to continue to be disabled, well, that's exactly the point. You should apply and get the benefits because you need to protect your financial stability and security in the event that you don't get better right away. Um, you know, as soon as you start to feel better and can, you know, are ready to go back to work, there's nothing stopping you from doing that. You just 
terminate your claim for benefits. You notify the insurer, I'm, you know, I'm back at work or I'm ready to go back to work. And then, you know, oftentimes um, disability policies have like a return to work incentive provision where they will continue paying your, your benefits even after you return to work for some, you know, temporary period because they want people to go back to work and get off of the benefits. So that can really bolster your um, financial security during that, that tricky transitional time when you're going back, trying it out, seeing whether you're up to it, seeing whether the job that you've gotten or gone back to is still you know, something you're able to do. So that that time is very tenuous and a lot of people try to go back and it doesn't work out. So if you're on benefits, it's it, that's a um, that's a safety net. So you can either get partial benefits or sometimes even full benefits during a return to work trial period. Well, speaking of partial, what if what if you know I say to you, look, Nina, um, I can't work. I just cannot work forty hours a week. Can I, you know, I just want to work 20 hours a week. What do I do? Can I still apply for disability? Most policies have a partial disability provision. So you can continue to be paid a partial disability benefit and then get paid for your part-time work as well. Usually it, there's, I mean, different plans have different um, formulas for how the partial disability benefit is calculated. Oftentimes there's a, a limit of you can't, the, the sum of your disability benefit and your work earnings can't be greater than your pre-disability right. earnings, basically. <laughs> um, can't do better. Why? Um, because the insurance company doesn't want to pay. <laughs> That's <right>. why. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, but, and there, there are occasional policies that don't have a partial disability provision. Right. So you've got to check or ask, ask an attorney to check for you. Um, but most policies do. Now, um, here's another scenario. What if I got COVID? I got mm -hmm. diagnosed for COVID. I start a new job, and they, and then I begin to get sick. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a employer-sponsored policy, but the insurance company says, "Well, you got COVID before you came on board, and so uh, we don't. We we're not gonna." cover you for things that happened before you came on board our company. Um, so I, I, many, sorry, go ahead. And, 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 and I think they call it pre-existing condition. Yeah. So what, what unfortunately, then? Yeah. Unfortunately, disability income, you know, replacement policies are allowed to have pre-existing condition limitations, unlike health policy, you know, health plans aren't allowed to do that anymore since the Affordable Care Act, but disability plans can um, and and usually do um, you know the if the the look back period really varies from plan mm -hmm. to plan so if you had covid and then you know six months later you get a job a new job it may well be that that covid infection is outside of the look back period and so you're not subject to the pre-existing condition limitation um, and, you know, if the, if the symptoms of the, of COVID were different than the symptoms that are currently disabling, in other words, COVID was, you know, acute respiratory distress and fever and that sort of thing. And then now 
six months or a year later, you're experiencing brain fog, and that's what's keeping you from working, I think there's a good argument to be made that you don't have a pre-existing condition because you weren't being treated for brain fog or, you know, chronic fatigue prior to your coverage under the plan. You were being treated for something else. They're related, but they're not the same thing. So, that's the that's the angle I would use to approach it. But I mean, there's gray areas there, and it does depend on the specific language of the plan. So that would be a good good area to if you have the resources to to seek out um, an attorney's help. Is it true that they can only exclude you for so long in a group policy? So um, well, it depends on what the policy says. So there's not there's not legal limitations on pre-existing condition limitations, but most of them say um, twelve months. So like, if I was treated for a condition within three to three or six months prior to my coverage under the plan, then I cannot get disability benefits for that condition during the first twelve months of my coverage. After twelve months. Even if you, you know, even if the condition was pre-existing, you can still get benefits for it. So that protects people who, you know, have a chronic condition. Let's say, um, let's say MS, just to choose something out of my imagination, and, and they've been treated for MS for years and years, and they've been at their job for years and years, but then eventually that the, the the condition deteriorates and they need to get LTD. They're not subject to a pre-existing condition limitation because they've been working with that condition, you know, under the same policy for more than 12 months or 24 months. So they, they're protected. You know, you know what's really unique about COVID um, as it relates to disability claim, I think, is the fact that people can test positive, then negative, then positive. So what if someone tested positive before they are part of the group policy? Mm-hmm. Then once they got the job, they're working, they're, ne- they're tested negative a few times, then they become positive again. Mm-hmm. Couldn't you argue that this is not a pre-existing, pre-existing con- condition because they were part, they were tested negative? Negative, yeah. yeah. It could be a new infection. Totally. Yeah, I would infection, absolutely right? make that argument, <laughs> yes. Uh, it's really interesting how COVID um, is intersecting with so many different areas of laws right now. Definitely, definitely. Anything else you want us to know about COVID and disability? Um, not that I can think of, but I, I um, there are lots of resources available online. Um, and I would definitely encourage people to check out both the CDC and the um, HHS and Department of Labor resources on on long COVID as disabling, because I think they can be very useful to present to either your employer or to an insurance company or to a state agency, anywhere you're getting pushback on, on COVID being a disabling condition. There's some very mainstream government resources now that are saying this is disabling or it can be disabling and, and uh, setting out criteria. So I would encourage people to check those out. And we'll put those uh, links in the description um, below sure. in the video. And of course, also uh, Nina's um, law firm's website. So if you need someone to represent you, um, you could contact Nina. And, um, and I believe you can represent clients from outside of California too, right? 
Yes, I certainly can, um, especially in in litigation. I can as well. It requires some paperwork, but um, for just advice, yes, I can do that. Okay, great. Thanks so much for giving us this update, and please come back soon. I definitely will. Thanks for having me. To learn more about Time Out and NIMSA, go to nimsa.me. Join our social media and continue the conversation on Time Out for Humanity. Let us know what topics you would like us to cover.